Welcome to the Richard Roper Podcast. So much going on. We got sports stuff. We got movie stuff. We got TV stuff. Uh, we just had the Emmys. Next week, we got the Oscar nominations. It's award season. And of course, of course, of course, of course, one more, of course, I'll have some reviews for you guys as well. All of that on the Richard Roper Podcast. But you know what happens first. I got to remind you. The Richard Roper Show is brought to you by AmericanEagle.com Studios. The digital landscape is changing rapidly, and to compete in today's online business environment, you need an experienced partner. Since 1995, AmericanEagle.com has partnered with companies of all sizes, offering web design, web development, e-commerce, mobile apps, and digital marketing to drive your overall business's success because they believe that today's online world is your online opportunity. Visit AmericanEagle.com to get started today. That's AmericanEagle.com. And I am in the beautiful AmericanEagle.com studios as we speak, as I speak, and hopefully you listen, in beautiful Displayed, Illinois. That's where we're actually located now. You know, I'm in Chicago. I do some stuff from my home studio, but American Eagle, the studios are actually in Desplaines, or as we like to say, Displaines. And it is, uh, as we speak here, it's a, what day is it? Somebody help me. If only there were devices where you could just look up times and dates and weather and things. Uh, it's Wednesday. This will be coming to you probably in the next day or two. And uh, we're out of the polar vortex of it being like minus eight degrees in Chicago. And now it's like a balmy 12. So uh, we're enjoying that. But hey, it's January. It's Chicago. That's the way it goes. Okay, I want to start by talking uh, about uh, some recent events in the worlds of sports and uh, television. Uh, as a lot of you know, the Chiefs-Dolphins game, uh, speaking of the weather, because, of course, it was freezing in Kansas City. They postponed the Buffalo game. They pushed it back one day. Kansas City game they played on a Saturday night, and uh, the interesting television angle here was this was the first time a playoff game, an NFL playoff game, was on uh, a streamer exclusively. We've had regular season games on Prime Video, etc., but this was the first time this had ever been done where the only way you could see the game live was if you got the peacock, you needed the peacock. And if you, if you wanted to sign up for the peacock, I think it was $5 and 99 cents. Some people already had the peacock. I had the peacock, but then a lot of people were saying, I'm not going to pay for this. People are very vocal about what they're not going to do. I'm not going to pay for peacock. I'm not going to buy Bud Light ever again. I'm never going to target or I won't eat a Chick-fil-A or, I, of course, a lot of these people who were saying they weren't going to pay for Peacock and have been you know, really upset by Taylor Swift in the stands. I thought they stopped watching football like six, seven years ago when players were taking a knee during the national anthem. Remember that? Remember when Mike Pence staged a walkout? He was vice president. I think it was at the Colts game, right? He went to the Colts game. Maybe, you know, of course, when the vice president travels, there's a lot of security and secret service and et cetera, et cetera, and an entourage. And then when some players uh, either sat on the bench or took a knee or whatever for the national anthem, then Pence and his, his whole detail, they left in a huff, which was, to me, first of all, you're missing the point of the protest. But beyond that, it was one of the most contrived in a, in a world in which a lot of politicians on both sides of the aisle do all kinds of contrived stunts. You knew that was going to happen. So why did you plan on going to the game? You planned on going to the game so you could get publicity for walking out and show that core fan base, hey, look, I got you. But anyway. Uh, a lot of people said they weren't going to stream the uh, the Peacock game or pay the five ninety nine. Here's the story from CNN: Peacock scored a touchdown 
registering record ratings and internet usage for the matchup of the freezing cold between the Kansas City Chiefs and the Miami Dolphins. The Peacock exclusive wildcard game garnered 23 million total viewers, according to Nielsen. That sets the record for the most streamed live event in U.S. history and was responsible for the most internet usage ever in the U.S. on a single day. How do they know that? The most internet usage ever? claiming it consumed 30% of internet traffic during the Saturday night game. Now, um, that number also does include the, the two places where you didn't have to pay for the Peacock. Uh, the two markets were Miami and Kansas City. I guess they decided, you know, for the two teams, the two home teams, not home home markets, games in Kansas City. So Miami and Kansas City could get another local NBC affiliates. I'm assuming it did better in Kansas City than Miami. So... So six bucks per month for Peacock, six dollars to get the game. If you wanted to sign up, you could keep Peacock for a month and enjoy all the other programming on Peacock and then decide not to do it. I know as we talked about there were other deals, you could sign up for Instacart Plus. And I know you're not supposed to share accounts, people share accounts, whatever the case may be. 23 million total viewers. That's a nice number. People will pay for football. TV sports remain super valuable because of the fact that they are live events. Some people will say, oh, you know, I remember back in the day, I think there was a Seinfeld episode where he taped the Mets game the v on his VHS, and then Kramer gave away the score. If you know what happened in the Mets game, don't say anything. I taped it. Hello. Yeah, no, I'm sorry. You have the wrong number. Yeah. You up? Yeah. Yeah. People do move. <laughs> Have you ever seen the big trucks out on the street? <laughs> yeah, no problem. Boy, the Mets blew it tonight, huh? Oh, what are you doing? Kester, it's a tape. I taped the game. It's one o'clock in the morning. I avoided human contact all night to watch this. And I know people that used to do that in the early days of VHS recording and even TiVo. They'd record a game and say, don't tell me what happened. And, you know, if you let's say you were working a shift on a, a night shift on a job where you couldn't have the radio on and your favorite, you know, the Bulls were playing or something like that. You could record a game and go home and watch it in real time. It's a lot harder to do that in the age of social media. You'd have to shut down completely. First of all, not talk to any humans but also stay off everything because, of course, on Twitter and, and every other you know, Facebook, et cetera, people are commenting in real time on the game. That's the value of NFL football and all live sports uh, that you want to watch it in real time. And what we're going to see, I think, uh, in the future is even more people and entities uh, having to pay to see the game, different streaming services. There's a breaking point for everybody. And I know a lot of people uh, during covid in particular, you know, signed up for so many different streaming services and pay-per-view and get, ordering movies. And then all of a sudden, you you know, if you sit down and, and add up the bill, you're like, oh, my gosh, I'm spending you know, $200 a month on stuff. And then you, you kind of peel back. Uh, but I think people are much more likely, if they have a choice in, in the world of sports, even though there are so many other entertainment options, if, you know, if it's between NFL playoff games and one of the other streaming services. I think a lot of people would go for uh, NFL games. So that that's going to continue that pattern in the future. There's going to be paywalls. There's going to be other ways you're going to have to pay. And listen, as you all know, when you're watching the games on so-called free television, again, unless you do it on a delay and you fast forward through the ads, um, th that's why commercial time is so valuable, not just in the Super Bowl, but regular NFL games, other big ticket sporting events, because you 
will sit through those, especially those 30-second ads they do now when there's a quick timeout on the field and they put the ad in one corner in the game. You can still see the refs discussing the replay or whatever. Uh, you got to sit through those ads. And the average NFL game has 62 minutes of commercials during the game telecast. And I'm even talking about pre- and post-game. The main telecast, which goes about three hours and 15 minutes, about a third of that is commercials, folks. So, you know, you're saying, I don't want to pay six bucks. Of course, on Peacock, you're getting commercials as well. But even when you're watching it on free TV, you got to sit through a lot of ads. All right. Also, in the world of uh, football and sports, a lot of talk lately about booing. We've talked about heckling and booing, and I don't understand it, but some people feel if they bought a ticket to see a comic or a sporting event, it's their right to boo and heckle. I, I think, you know, in when it comes to live performances of music and, and, and comedy, whatever, you just shut up and watch it. If you don't like it, leave. I get it a little bit more in sports. I, to me, I could see booing, you know, when you think the officials made a bad call, I think it's definitely warranted if you feel a player is not putting out the effort. If you see somebody slacking, not running out of ground ball or not, uh, you see some players kind of take a playoff in, in football. Or when the coach keeps calling for three-yard passes when you're down by 17 in the fourth quarter, okay, you want to boo. You know, I think booing because someone dropped a ball or someone struck out, they're not trying to do that. And then it gets to the next level. We had a a, a terrible incident in Chicago, and it's been uh, talked to and talked about and discussed ad nauseum, so I'm not going to get into a big discussion about it. But as you may know, the Chicago Bulls honored their 1996 legendary championship team. They're doing a ring of honor at the United Center, like they do in so many stadiums, the Cowboys. And, you know, you see all the retired numbers, the Yankees, et cetera. They brought in a lot of members of the team, former coach Phil Jackson. Michael Jordan didn't come. Uh, Scottie Pippen didn't, didn't come. They hate each other. They didn't come. Dennis Rodman tried to come, but he got caught up in the weather because it was very stupid of the Bulls to stage this thing in the dead of winter when they could have done it, you know, at the beginning of the season or even in the spring. The the terrible thing was that Thelma Krause, who was the widow of Jerry Krause, the controversial architect, the GM uh, and uh, a longtime executive, not only with the Bulls, but a, a chief scouting guy for the White Sox in Chicago. And Jerry passed away years ago. If you saw the documentary series, The Last Dance, he was vilified. Uh, he's been thrown under the bus. He, he, Jerry was not always... Uh, the most likable guy, but he was a brilliant architect of trades and deals. He's the reason they got, they basically traded a guy named Olden Polonies to get Scottie Pippen. Jerry Krause brought in Dennis Rodman at a time when a lot of people thought that the circus around Dennis was more important to Dennis than playing. And then Rodman had some monumental years. He brought in uh, Luke Longley. He brought in uh, Bill Cartwright, different, different things. You know, they're only the only constants in those two uh, three peat uh, runs by the Bulls really were, you know, Phil and, and Scotty and Michael. And it was building different players around him. Anyway, when they introduced Jerry Krause, the late Jerry Krause, he was going to be inducted into this uh, ring of honor. The fans booed mercilessly and poor uh, Mrs. Krause in the, in the crowd was, was driven to tears. It was horrible. It was just a horrible thing. Ron Harper, who was a former Bulls player, he was right there and he was comforting her. And as I said, people have talked, everybody from Charles Barkley on, you know, all around the world has talked about this. There's just no excuse for that. What is wrong with you people? You're booing a man's memory. He's gone and you're booing a widow. Now, Kelly Stafford has called out Lions fans. Kelly Stafford is the wife of Matthew Stafford. They've got a bunch of kids, of course. 
Uh, Matthew Stafford was with the Lions for a very long time, then was traded to the Rams. So you had this big game where the Rams are playing the Lions, which means, you know, now uh, Jared Goff and Matthew Stafford were on different teams, and it was a very exciting game. And there's footage of uh, uh, Kelly and the couple's four daughters going out on the field, and you hear some booing. She says they were booing her family and the kids. Now she's kind of walking it back a little bit. I, I don't think people were literally saying, let's boo the kids. But they probably were booing Kelly. She's a controversial figure. She's been through a lot. Uh, she puts herself out there. She's got a very popular podcast and social media following. You know, I, I think there's, there's, you shouldn't have to hide your children. You know, you want to bring your kids to the game. You could maybe not parade them on the field. Uh, again, I'm not excusing the behavior, though. One person booed kids. You know, you're an asshole. Stop doing that. Uh, everybody just feels now that they have this right to boo. There was a fan who kind of rushed the Lakers bench the other day and LeBron gave him a big, you know, a big push. And we get more and more of this where these fans seem to think that they know the, the athletes and the and the coaches and, and they want to interact with them. And it's like, I, again, I don't get the booing. There was another incident in the Tampa Bay Philadelphia game, which was down in Tampa Bay. But, you know, there were conti a sizable contingent of Eagles fans and these two galoots, jamokes, jabronis, Eagles fans, they had on their jerseys and everything. Uh, one of them threw popcorn on the Eagles coach as the Eagles were uh, leaving the field. And when I looked at the video, to me, the most ridiculous thing is these these two middle-aged idiots, they're wearing jerseys. And listen, I don't wear jerseys to games because I, I just it's just not my thing. But that's fine if people want to wear jerseys of their favorite players or their favorite players from the past. You know, it's everybody just getting involved in it. You look at... Uh, you look at still photos and footage from even 30 years ago and definitely from, you know, back in the 70s. Nobody did that. Hardly anybody really selling the stuff. And all the pro sports teams got really smart about that. And they market the hell out of stuff and the college teams as well. I, it's not my thing. I, I'm, you know, I'm not I don't want to wear a jersey of a 22 year old and go to a game or boo him. I will cheer them and admire their play. But anyway, the funniest thing to me was that these two guys had helmets with them, like Eagles helmets. And you see this sometimes. And they so after the one guy threw the popcorn, they kind of grabbed their helmets and tried to run away from security. And I'm like, why are you wearing helmets in the stands of an NFL game? You're not you're not going in. And they're like toy helmets. I mean they're they're full size, but they're not you know, the, the the protective helmets that the real pros wear. So I'm like, well, you order those or you make those? I guess you order them and then I've, you see this sometimes, people sitting in the stands wearing shoulder pads and helmets. And I'm like, do you dress as a cat if you go to see cats on Broadway? <laughs> I don't get it. Do you put, if you went to a, if you went to Cape Canaveral or someplace to see, a, or Houston or wherever to see a space launch, do you put on your astronaut costume? What is wrong with people? Okay, uh, moving into the world of television, we had the Emmy Awards uh, just a couple of days ago. A lot of great shows. I, I love that the, uh, the Beef on Netflix, which I talked about, my favorite new series of last year, swept the Emmys. Uh, the Bear continues its uh, awards season victory laps. It's interesting because the Emmys were for season one of The Bear. The Golden Globes were for season two because the Emmys got pushed back. But anyway, one of the interesting things out of this was Better Call Saul, one of the great shows of all time which has finished its run, of course, premiered, gosh, can you believe this? It premiered nine years ago? Better Call Saul, nine years ago. Wow. It was nominated in all categories for a total of 58 Emmy nominations and walked away after its superb run 
with zero wins. Somehow, whether it was, you know, Bob Odenkirk, uh, Rhea Seahorn, Jonathan Banks, Giancarlo Esposito, the writing, none of it ever won. And, you know, it, that's ridiculous. That's insane. But also, I, I, I do want to point out that when all is said and done, if you look back, and the Emmys have actually done a really good job through the years. I mean, you go back once in a while, you're like, how did that win? But, you know, even when you look at the 60s and the 70s, a lot of the classic shows won a lot of Emmys. You know, they were recognized at the time. It's not like a lot of, you know, mainstream, you know, once in a while, but it's like a lot of the, you know, middle of the road TV series that'll play for 10 or 12 or 15 years. They don't win a lot of Emmys, but, you know, acclaimed shows like ER and Mad Men and Modern Family uh, have have cleaned up at the Emmys and Abbott Elementary is doing really well now. The thing I want to say about A Better Call Saul, though, is I believe it is the greatest prequel series of all time in the history of television. I think what they did on Better Call Saul it's just incredible because as you all know, Breaking Bad was, was one of the greatest television series of all time. And it was this, you know, this ever expanding uh, universe of, you know, Albuquerque and Walter White and all of the attendant characters, and, but all these side characters. And then, you know, Bob Odenkirk as Saul, who I think was brought, I want to say season two, I could be wrong about that guys, but you know, was, was brought in Maybe maybe wasn't going to have as long of a run even on the main show, although he was going to be a key character. But it, he he instantly Odenkirk was brilliant. The character was so fascinating. Uh, he became such a huge thing. And then they announced at the, at the end of Breaking Bad, which I think you know people talk about the endings of shows all the time. It's the 25th anniversary of The Sopranos. I still say I loved the ending. I know a lot of people didn't. Game of Thrones people still haven't gotten over it. But Breaking Bad, I think a lot of people felt really ended on the right note justice was served everybody kind of wound up where they should then they did el camino which was you know with uh jesse aaron paul's character we saw more of what happened with him but when they announced they were going to do a whole series on on saul saul goodman that's how he came that name it's all good man saul goodman i i was a little skeptical even though it was vince gilligan and a lot of the you know people that were involved with breaking bad returned to albuquerque which i thought was actually very cool you know a lot of the crew members etc but i was like what are they gonna do with this and then of course they did this absolutely masterful job we saw first of all we occasionally would have these sequences that and scenes that were set after the events of breaking bad but mostly beforehand, going all the way back to when he was, uh, what was it, Jimmy McGill from Cicero, which is a, a, another part of the Chicagoland area here, guys. Bob Odenkirk is actually from suburban Chicago. And we saw what happened with him and Michael McKean as, as his brother and all the other you know amazing supporting characters. And they brought in so many characters from Breaking Bad including, you know, uh, Brian Cranston came back and they did it in a way that actually didn't feel like they were shoehorning them in. But to place all of these characters, you know, basically years before the events of Breaking Bad. And listen, there were a couple of you know strange things like, you know, Mike's granddaughter's age kind of never changed. And that's fine. You know, you got to you got to have some poetic license. But it, it's a great, great series. The greatest prequel series of all time, regardless of its Emmy record. I, very quickly, I'll say my other choices. And I know there's a lot of like Star Trek and uh, Star Wars universe stuff. I, I, I'm not the hugest fan of all of those shows, so I can't speak with the greatest authority about which one is the best. But out of the ones I've seen, I would put uh, for sure Better Call Saul. I think they did a great job with Fear of the Walking Dead. 
Uh, the Yellowstone, their dual prequels, 1883 and 1923 in the Taylor Sheridan universe, and those are really well done. They got plans, I think, for something like five more spinoffs of Yellowstone, including one that's going to be uh, called 1944, which will which will be fascinating. I always thought that would be a cool thing to do with Downton Abbey. You know, Downton Abbey, the series, it began right with the Titanic, so that would have been 1912, I want to say. I'm doing this on the fly, so if I get a date wrong, stay with me. But the series Downton Abbey went through about a 10 to 12-year period, and then we had the two movies, which took us all the way up until the, the second one. It was, you know, the dawn of the talking movie. So almost 20 years in, those, in, the, in the lives of those characters. I think they're going to do another Downton Abbey movie. Those two films have done really well. But I thought it would be really cool if somebody wanted to do uh, Julian Fellows or, who you know, whoever, but that he's the main architect, the showrunner. I thought it'd be great to see a Downton Abbey set like in the 50s, you know, somewhere around then where, you know, it would be the children and grandchildren of those characters, sort of like they did with The Crown, you know, completely fictional. I thought they did a good job also with House of the Dragon, I want to mention. The Game of Thrones, talk about a prequel, I think it's set 200 some years in advance. So a lot of great sequels out there and prequels and spinoffs, but not the Ted prequel. Don't watch that. Okay, quick break couple of reviews. Stay with us. All right, let's talk about Portillo's. Now, they, of course, are known for their famous Chicago hot dogs with all the freshest and tastiest ingredients, right down to that poppy seed bun. And then, of course, there's the legendary chocolate cake. If you're hearing this right now, that means you are alive and near a computer. That's all you got to be. That's all you need to go to Portillo's.com and check out their entire selection of stuff you can get anywhere in these United States of America. Now, if you're blessed enough to live near a Portillo's, then you don't have to worry about getting online. Just go to the store, get the hot dogs, get the Italian beef, the salads, the chicken. They got it great. And then, of course, the chocolate cake, the single greatest item of all chocolate cake items in the history of humanity. You think I'm overstating that? I am not. Go and find out yourself. Go to the store, order online. Unbelievable, the chocolate cake. And they even have a cake shake. They take the cake, they smoosh it into a can with some super cool ingredients. I don't know, they do a bunch of stuff. There's ice cream, and all of a sudden you got a chocolate cake shake. When it comes out of the blender, it's the best. It is a unique dining experience every time. Go to portillos.com. Find a location near you. You can order online. P-O-R-T-I-L-L-O-S. Portillos.com. If you look closely, you'll find something tragic was happening. You interested in writing something for us? I don't do assignments anymore. Yeah, well, you're a better writer than most people do anything. Have you heard the tapes? No. Uh, of what? Stafford Police Department, Hey, we've had some break-ins in my neighborhood, and there's a real suspicious guy. Looks like he's up to no good or something. I want to be in the story. You go and write your stories. Folks need to know about this. I don't write questions. I write answers. 
I want to start off by uh, talking about Origin, because uh, this is a kind of movie that I, I fear might not get the play it deserves, guys, because when you hear what it's about, it's one of those films, you know, when people, whenever people say, and I, I, I have been guilty of saying this, whenever people say things like, oh, this should be shown in every classroom in America, or this is a must-watch a lesson about history and the mistakes we've made. You know, people start going, oh man, I'm, I'm not in school anymore. I don't want to see that. Uh, and that is the case with Origin. It's uh, based on Isabel Wilkerson's dense and sprawling and brilliant and very challenging, yes, nonfiction bestseller that was called Cast, The Origins of Our Discontents. In the book, Isabel Wilkerson kind of, then kind of, she went into this whole thing about how you can't just blame quote unquote, racism for everything. There's more to it than that. And when she was talking about caste there, she was talking about the caste system in India, which was based not on race, but socioeconomic factors. And in the movie, uh, Ava DuVernay, the, the, the director, did a brilliant thing because it's very hard to bring, you know, this nonfiction kind of thesis to life as a piece of cinema. And she does it by showing how Isabel Wilkerson decided to write the book and how she researched the book. So we have recreations of certain scenes. We have a lot about her personal life. She was going through uh, a triple tragedy, losing three of the most important people in, in her life. Uh, and But then there's also, yeah, kind of this uh, academic look about how the final solution uh, by the Nazis in some ways drew upon some Jim Crow South laws and Americans' uh, institutional racism and slavery and then the caste system. So it's all tied together. And again, I know I'm making this sound like an academic exercise, but it's also a beautifully done film. And yes, very thought-provoking. On the very uh, opposite end of the spectrum, when you want to talk about just pure comfort viewing, uh, we have the uh, limited series Death and Other Details. This is kind of a combo platter of the White Lotus and Knives Out with a little bit of succession. Uh, it's it's what they call a locked room mystery. Can't believe we're going to be trapped on this thing for 10 days. I'm so sorry I dragged you into this. Pay attention. If you want to solve a crime, you must first learn to see through the illusion. Details matter. Yesterday, one of our guests was murdered. And we're fortunate to have a world-renowned detective on board, Mr. Rufus Coatsworth. Oh, my God. Should I introduce myself? There are forces at play that you cannot comprehend. There are billions on the line. It's a puzzle. We have what we need to solve it. Now we make the pieces fit. The jokes are here. Pay attention. <laughs> Details matter. So, you know, you get your murder and then you get your uh, detective and then you get all your suspects. And usually in these types of things, there's always at least one more murder before everything gets solved. Um, so death and other details. Yeah, it's interesting because I I don't read a lot of reviews until after I've done my review. It's it's not getting great press, but I thought it was a lot of fun. It's on Hulu, by the way. The great Mandy Patinkin plays Rufus Coatsworth, who was once the world's greatest detective. He's kind of fallen on hard times. They're all on this luxury cruise liner. 
a murder takes place and uh, Rufus teams up with uh, Imogen, who's played by Violet Bean, a young woman who's got a past where when she was a child, uh, her mother was murdered and Rufus was supposed to solve it and he didn't. So there's a lot of tension between the two of them, but they team up to try to solve this murder on this cruise ship. I, you know, it's not succession. It's not the white Lotus. It's not knives out, but it's got a lot of those elements and it, it's pretty easy comfort viewing. Uh, also on the true crime front, I want to mention, uh, the first great must watch true crime series of 2024. That would be American nightmare on Netflix. I wake up bright light blinding us. Taser goes off. I see they're wearing wetsuits. What, what did they swim in? So what happens next? That Aston needs to tie my hands behind my back. I didn't do anything. Yeah, you did. Oh my God, it's her. I just got a message. She's walking over to my house. I've never heard of a case where the kidnappers drop their victim at the front door of their house. We thought she's this innocent victim. She looks more like a suspect. Police now wondering, is Huskins a real life gone girl? Now, this is only a three-parter. I know a lot of times they go into six or seven parts. I think this one actually could have been a little bit longer. I don't know how many of you, you remember the real-life Gone Girl case. This was in March of 2015, and this case in real life transpired only about six months after the release of the movie Gone Girl. Okay, you remember the movie Gone Girl, David Fincher adapting Gillian Flynn's uh, best-selling novel. Uh, Rosamund Pike's Amy is married to Ben Affleck's Nick. He's having an affair with a student. There's trouble in their marriage. There's a break-in at their home. Amy disappears. Nick becomes the suspect. Then Amy resurfaces, telling this horrific tale about being kidnapped and raped, and the police are suspicious of her tale, to say the least. That's what that's the framework of Gone Girl, right? Now, in this real-life case in Vallejo, California, in March of 2015, just six months after the release of Gone Girl, 30-year-old Aaron Quinn called the police saying that his 29-year-old girlfriend had been kidnapped. Police immediately said they didn't buy his story. They thought he was the suspect. They believe he might have murdered his girlfriend. Then the victim shows up telling a horrific tale about being kidnapped and raped, and the police immediately pivot and focus their suspicions on her. So as you can see, there's a reason why the media jumped on it as the real-life Gone Girl case. Um, here's the thing, spoiler alert, since this happened in real life, in the case of the real-life story told in American Nightmare, it wasn't a hoax. They weren't making things up. It all really happened, and it's shameful and infuriating and it defies belief when you see especially the interrogation uh, conducted by the police and by FBI agents badgering these two victims and telling them that they made it up and telling them it's a federal crime to lie to law enforcement while the actual kidnapper or kidnappers were out there doing it again. So it's called American Nightmare on Netflix. American Nightmare, three-parter, great true crime series. Okay, as we mentioned at the top of the podcast uh, next week, we get the Oscar nominations uh, next Tuesday. So on Tuesday, just a few days from now, uh, the nominations will be announced early Tuesday morning. And by Tuesday afternoon, we're going to have a brand new pop and fresh podcast with my 
instant reaction to all the nominations. And of course, we must famously say, who got snubbed? So we're going to talk all about all of that on the next podcast. Thanks for listening, guys. I'm Richard Roper. We'll talk soon.